Hello, and welcome to Songs for the Struggling Artist, the blogcast. This is episode 97. Thank you for listening. Uh, I'm Emily, for those of you who I have not met and do not know. Um, I, I, I'm pleased to meet you through the blogcasting forum. <laughs> Um, so today's blogcast is in a category of, of blog posts. Um, I, I chronicle pretty much every rejection notice that I receive, and I receive a lot. Um, I do that because my one of my Patreon patrons suggested it as a as a, a solution to the problem I was having of feeling really demotivated by applying for anything because of all the rejection letters, and I was trying to search for some way to kind of fool myself to think it was a good thing. Um, so she suggested uh, setting it up so that I get um, basically a payment from my Patreon subscribers every time I get rejected. <laughs> so so that's being chronicled over there. Um, and this, this one is kind of in that world, but I wrote it with a little bit more, uh, I don't know, structure than my usual blog rejection type posts and it, and it, and I feel like there's more I don't know general value to it than than some of those others and people have been responding to it in a really interesting way so so I'm going to share it with you here on the on the blogcast so I think without any further ado this is a big disappointment and how to go on When I was in college, I had one goal, and one goal only, and that was to be a part of a particular Shakespeare company I'd been inspired by a few years earlier. While I was still in school, I auditioned for them and secured my very first acting job at what was then my dream company. The fact that I was making $50 a week did not matter to me in the least. I was on track for the life I wanted. I thought I'd just keep working there forever, and my artistic destiny was set. But then I had a rather rude awakening when none of us were cast in the next season. I picked myself up, dusted myself off, and worked in Atlanta, Roanoke, and Memphis before returning to audition again a year later and got to do another season of Shakespeare with them. It wasn't long after that that I moved to New York City and away from performing. But that theater, where I started, is firmly imprinted on me. It was formative in my aesthetic, my career path, and my sense of self. I've done a lot of other things since then and grown and shifted in lots of directions I'd never have predicted. But there's something about that company that will always have a quality of home for me. So when this writing opportunity with them came up, it had a sense of faded poetry to it. Artist returns to artistic home in a new role, to a new beginning. It also had a curious quality of uniting what has always felt like two parallel tracks that would never meet. That is my Shakespeare identity and my feminist playwriting identity. I just generally assumed those two aspects of myself would never have much call to meet. Aside, of course, from the devised Shakespeare piece I made a few years ago where I used my dramaturgical skills to write with Shakespeare's words. Anyway, something about the call for submissions for this just felt like little blocks of fate slotting one into another. 
I wrote a play very quickly that grappled with things in comedy of errors that I have always struggled with and found I'd woven together two strands of my artistry that I hadn't known I could. Because I know the company well, I wrote it with them in mind. I saw their space, I saw their actors. It came to me more easily than almost anything else I've ever written. Part of me thought, they'd be crazy not to select this play. It is for them. It is their aesthetic. It will showcase their particular skills. It gives their actors, particularly the women, opportunities that they don't often get. And because I'm a former actor in their company from 20 years ago, this press release just writes itself. As a friend of mine said, that's a marketing goldmine. They'd have to choose you for that alone. But I am pretty used to rejection and pretty used to not being the choice of the status quo. So I was actually pretty delightfully surprised to be first a semifinalist and then a finalist for what would be a life-changing prize and a kick-ass opportunity to return to an artistic home. When I received the email that I was a finalist, I started to fantasize about what would happen were I to get it. I'd return not just to a theater that was once a home, but also my home state. I'd finally get some recognition as a playwright in a well-publicized, prestigious situation. It would have paid me more money than I have ever made in a year. I began to acknowledge myself that it was something I really wanted. Generally, I try not to do this. I just apply for stuff and I move on. I thought about it a lot. It started to feel a little bit like when I was in college wanting to work for this company. I started to feel like the poetic circularity of the thing meant that I was destined to get it. When the rejection came, it hit me harder than any rejection has in a long while. The O'Neill was hard, but I never really thought I'd get even as far as the semifinals, so I wasn't surprised not to get an acceptance there. But this one, I knew I had a shot. The poetry of the story was too good. But real life doesn't work like a story. I seem to have to learn this lesson over and over again. I suppose that's the peril of being a story maker. I am infinitely vulnerable to good stories. For example, I cannot be 100% positive that I didn't partly choose to go to the graduate school I went to due to the serendipity of my sharing a name with it. This would not be a good reason to go to a school, by the way. I have 20 plus years of practice at dealing with rejection. When the American Shakespeare Company, then known as Shenandoah Shakespeare Express, didn't hire me in 1996 as I expected them to, it was a shocking betrayal that took me a while to recover from. Here in the spring of 2018, I saw that rejection email from them, felt the blow to my solar plexus, and then just got on with making things. I finished recording a song for the podcast and practiced the choreography for the Nelkin line I'm joining this weekend. I'm grateful for the decades of artistic practice that has helped me put my eggs in multiple baskets so that when, say, the playwriting basket falls to the ground and all my eggs break, I can just reach into the music basket or the blogging basket, as I'm doing now, and I know I'll have eggs enough for an omelet later. I can't say I'm not sad to get to see my play performed on that damn beautiful stage by those actors I tailor made that play for. I am fucking sad about it, no doubt. But I now have a play 
that is much more easily produced than most of my other work. I have a prequel to Comedy of Errors that maybe one day someone else might want to do. It's sad. I'm sad. And the hope hangover will be brutal, I know. But I have weathered disappointment consistently for the last two decades. I can do it some more. The thing to do when you are disappointed by art is to make more art. It is the only way through. So the, the thing that's interesting, I, this, I, I really wasn't expecting this blog to like take off. And it, and it didn't take off, take off. But it, it did get actually a fair amount of views. And um, <laughs> a lot of them were from other bloggers. I think, you know, a lot of people who, who blog, uh, at least, you know, the other ones on WordPress and probably other blogs as well, uh, you know, they're, they're familiar with the putting stuff out and having, having disappointing things happen <laughs> or not happen, as it were. Um, so that was nice. And, uh, and it, it, in fact, has yielded some interesting uh, possibly opportunities. I don't know. At least it's like it's one of those good news, bad news situations like, hey, everybody, I, ha I was almost this cool thing. Um, and for some people, that, that uh, triggers a kind of status uh, leap. I don't know. They're like, oh, wait, peop other people like your writing? Maybe I should read it. It's so funny how, like, we think that the arts are merit-based, or at least I once, as a younger person, thought the arts were merit-based, that the, the best work got done. And now I fully get how it's m a lot of it is just a status game. And I just need to figure out how to game it myself because <laughs> I am not good at that. Anyway, um, so, yeah, it's been a little bit of a roller coaster, that and, you know, that, that. Uh, so I'd like to recommend a podcast to you if you haven't listened to it. Um, I think I've already recommended Dexter Guff, which is a hilarious podcast about a guy who's a, like a motivational speaker. It's, it's a fictionalized sort of podcast um, by a Canadian team. Uh, they, they have a show called This Is That, which I adore. And they did, I don't know if you've ever seen this, um, their parody of a TED Talk, which is one of my favorite sketches, like, ever. It's a great video. If you search, search for TED Talk parody, and you will find it. Um, but, yeah, they, they did a, a podcast called uh, Dexter Guff is smarter than you, I think, which was hilarious. You have to listen to it from the beginning, though. You can't, like, um, uh, you can't, like, sneak in in the middle. Like, it's not, like, episodic. It actually builds, which I didn't realize when I first started listening to it. So, um, but that's hilarious. But then, I th and I think I've already recommended that podcast. But they've also, that same team has been, uh, they're in the middle of, of one now called This Sounds Serious, which is a parody of like serial and other kind of true crime podcasts. And it is very funny. So check that out if that's of interest to you. And um, for this song today, I am, am still kind of re-recording lullabies from my lullaby project from a few years ago. 
um, or ongoing lullaby project. Started a few years ago and continuing, um, but I'm re-recording the the songs that were recorded prior to my acquiring this microphone. Uh, so I think what I would like to put here is um, is the lullaby that. Uh, my parents used to sing to me when I was little, and um, there's something about it. It's a kind of a um, sweetly melancholy lullaby. Um, it's a James Taylor song called "Sweet Baby James," and uh, I, I don't know. There's something about overcoming stuff in it for me, anyway. Um, yeah. So here it is, "Sweet Baby James." There is a young cowboy He lives on the range His horse and his cattle Are his only companions He works in the saddle And he sleeps in the canyon Waiting for summer His pastures to change As the moon rises, he sits by his fire Thinking about women and glasses of beer And closing his eyes as the doggies retire He sings out a song which is soft but it's clear As if maybe someone could hear Good night, you moon Sweet baby James Deep greens and blues Are the colors I choose Won't you let me go Down in my dreams And rock a Sweet baby James Now the first of December Was covered with snow And so was the turnpike from Stockbridge to Boston Lord, the Berkshires seemed dreamlike on account of that frosting With ten miles behind me and ten thousand more to go But there's a song that they sing when they take to the highway A song that they sing when they take to the sea a song that they sing of their home in the sky Maybe you can believe it if it helps you to sleep But singing works just fine for me Good night, you moonlight ladies Rock up by sweet baby James Deep greens and blues are the colors I choose won't you let me go down in my dreams And rock a sweet baby James Deep greens and blues are the colors I choose Won't you let me go down in my dreams And rock a sweet baby James just rock a bye, sweet baby, Jane.